Okay, so now we're going to try and get blood out of a stone here, right? <laughs> All right, I, I picked questions where they sort of are representative of several, and I can't do them all. So here we go. I experienced 30 plus years of spiritual abuse, three years of sexual abuse in the church. I'm healing, but church services create so many triggers. How would you encourage someone who's choosing to stay in church but is triggered by what I feel? First of all, I would like to use that question to help you understand something. If you have been abused in church settings by church leaders and people like that, you, you understand that church music and church statements and church people and church prayer and all of those things can also always, every time they happen, bring up a memory of being abused. Do you see what we're doing? We're not only teaching lies about God, but the things that are precious to us when we worship have been contaminated. So it's very important for us to understand that. So for someone like this, one, the ideal situation would be if you knew one or two people in the church who knew about your history so that you would have somebody to be with you in a church service who would know what those triggers are and so that you could say to them, when this happens, would you do this for me? Or when this happens, I'm going to walk out for five minutes and then I'll be back. Or, you know, it, it would be an individual, individual way to take care of yourself. I can't come up with a way that would work for everybody. But to have one or two people who understand what is happening, that precious things bring up horrific things that are completely against God every time you come to church, then there may be ways that they can help protect you, take you out and get, get you a breather, you can go outside and look at the trees, whatever, and nobody will ask any questions because they understand. And even if they do, you've got friends who will say, leave her alone. <laughs> um, and just sit in a way where you have, can go out the door. I knew a woman a long time ago who was terribly abused by multiple people in church. <clears throat> and somewhere along the way in our work together, she said, I, I'd like, she hadn't been to church for years. She said, I, I'd like to try and go back. So I said, well, let's figure out what that should look like. So we, she's decided to go. She figured out where. She decided to go after the service had started. We didn't want to talk to people. She sat in the back row and she left before it was over. And so she did that faithfully, took a lot of guts for about six months. And at the end of that six months, and we talked about it all the way along just to see how she was doing and things like that. But at the end of six months, she said to me, Diane, every Sunday when I do this, I sit in the back pew and there's a man who sits in front of me and his wife and they have two little girls that sit between them. And I've never spoken to them because it's already started and it's, you know, I leave before it's over. But I have watched him like a hawk and he never knew it. And he has been so kind to his wife and to his little girls, even when they're naughty. I've listened to his voice, his tone. I've watched his hands. I've looked at his eyes. And for the first time in my life, I think I have a glimpse of who God is my father actually is. This man never knew. 
but he became a, a living proverb example for her in church in a way that not only helped her personally, but gave her a different connection, not just to the church, but to God himself. So it, it, it wasn't like a bit, he never spoke to her. She never spoke to him. She didn't want him to speak to her. You know, she, she would have been terrified if he had. But, but don't underestimate the power of those kinds of things and how they can affect a life. can't see without these. How do we respond when we recognize a way we have abused power? Well, that's step number one. Um, if it's with an individual, or even if it's with a group, whatever, the, one of the things I would do once you recognize it and can somehow name it a little bit is go to that person or persons and say, I have power in the situation, and I recognize that I have used it abusively in a way that probably has hurt you, and I'm here to listen. I want to know what that was like for you. I want to know how it's affected you. I want to know if you see other ways that I'm missing. Just open up the conversation and receive what they have to say. That would be the first step. And I wouldn't uh, try to fix it in that time. Then I would give them time and say, if you think of other ways, I would still like to have this conversation. Um, and then I, after you've done that and they've, they've been able to say what they have to say, then the other thing you want to know from them is what would it look like for you if I not only didn't abuse it that way, but I actually treated you in ways that gave you a sense of being loved. So it's not just about stopping. It's about act actively pursuing and loving people that you have been abusive with. So they have the voice. What you do is invite them to speak and learn from them. And you also then invite them to come to you anytime they see it sticking its head up again, which it probably will, because a lot of these things that we've done and been unaware of are sort of habituated. And so sometimes we, we know we did it this way, but we didn't know we did it this way, this way, and this way too. So give them an, a road in, a voice in your life to say. Well, this is why I do what I do. How can we heal when representatives of God did this to us? It's just words for me to say representatives of God who did this are not representatives of God. What they did was live out lies about him. One of the things you might try to do is sit down and list all of the things they taught you about God and who he is and what he's like. And then on the other side of the paper, list the things that would be the opposite of that. Just to get a sense of what it should have looked like and what it did look like. And then what you want to do is, hopefully, maybe in a counseling relationship or something like that, is help figure out a way for you to figure out one or two people who might seem safe and how to test that out and see if they actually are safe. And little by little, begin to let them into your story because what they can do then is perhaps walk with you in ways that represent God accurately 
as you deal with what has been done to you. But the beginning, which won't fix it, but the beginning is to name what they did and what it taught you, and then name the truth that would be the opposite of those things. A woman in our church has suffered chronic trauma and abuse and has sought help from the church for years underlined. The church says they care, but they always say back to her, how can we help? What do you want us to do? The response has left her crushed and silenced and alone. Um, this is not uncommon, partly because churches are not trained to deal with abuse and have no idea what to do when somebody tells them about it and all of those things. But what you're doing when you say, what can we do, how can we help you, is put the burden of that on them, which is crushing. And so part of what you want to do if somebody's doing that and you're not able to say anything except how can we help, is to go find some people who have expertise in abuse and say, teach me what it would be like to respond to this woman in a way that would be helpful to her, in a way that would be protective, in a way that would help her feel safe, in a way that would give her a voice. Don't ask her. Go ask somebody like me. <laughs> somebody out there, somebody who does counseling with uh, trauma and abuse, or if you have people in your church that you know have experience and have even done their own work of healing in their lives that they could tell you. But don't put the burden of how can I help you on the person who can barely get up off the floor. How can the church address marital rape in light of the whole submission thing? <laughs> Especially if the husband is church pastor or a missionary. My experience in the evangelical world is that we have a very difficult time thinking that there's such a thing as marital rape. So I always tell them a true story so that you get the idea of what it really is. Many, many years ago, I saw a woman who was actually married to a pastor, and she had a horrific history as a child of being sexually abused by multiple perpetrators. And she got herself in counseling, and she was working on it. And one day she went home after she'd been in counseling for a, a good time, and she was clearly distraught when she got home. You know, she was still feeling what she'd been talking about. And her husband asked her what it was and whatever, and she decided to take the risk and tell him what had happened to her as a child. He didn't know. And so she told him one of the stories of what happened to her, which was that there was a man who raped her and he did that by tying her to the four posters of the bed and raping her when she was a young adolescent. And her husband listened and he held her and he patted her and she thought everything was fine. And then he took her by the hand and he led her back to the bedroom and their four poster bed. And he copied what the rapist had done. Now, if that's not marital rape, I'm not Diane Langberg. To use sex with somebody for yourself alone is not godly. Sex in marriage is intended to be a uniting, loving, caring, strengthening act. When we take it from another with no consideration 
of them, what they're feeling, what their history is, what happened that day between us or anything else. We have taken something and it has nothing to do with the way God designed it. I fear what, what we have done is often use biblical words like submission to mean you have to do what I want when I want it. Which if God did that, we'd all be going to hell. It's, that's not what he's called us to look like ever. And I will also say to some of you who are married to victims, male or female, I've worked with couples for years where one of them was sexually abused, and oftentimes there has to be a, a season where there is no sex going on at all. And what, part of what you're doing is giving your marriage a gift because you don't want what was to be in the room with you in your marriage. And so you let the partner do the work that they need to do, and then little by little introduce touch and things like that back. It's a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice of love. And I've seen marriages be radically changed because the partner has been willing to do that for whether it's the man or the woman with the abuse history. But to go in when somebody has been used in that way by force with no voice and no choice and treat them the same way, what you are doing is aligning yourself with the perpetrator. No matter what you call it or how you justify it. I think that was probably clear. In youth groups, students are often told that sex should be in the context of marriage. Students who have been sexually abused may have a lot of shame and be hesitant to talk. How can we address this? Yes, um, that has come up multiple times, both in, in my speaking and also at the office. One of the things that's so poignant is when a young adolescent girl comes in who's been raped and, and is weeping because now she's not a virgin. And she says that in a way that makes her contaminated, makes her somehow to blame, which she's not. So I think it's critical in youth groups. Of course you want to hold out God's plan for all of us. But you also want to hold out his, first of all, his forgiveness for people who haven't followed that plan by choice and his grace for that but particularly for those who have been violated in some way, that that is not at their foot, feet. It is not their thing. It's like, I sometimes have described this, you'll excuse me being so graphic, but I've described this sometimes to adolescents or adult women for that matter. So if somebody's standing and talking to you and all of a sudden they feel sick and they throw up and it goes all over you, what are you gonna smell like? Vomit. Whose? theirs, not yours. And if somebody walks by and sees you like that and doesn't know that happened, they'll say, oh my gosh, you're sick. You'll say, no, I'm not. The other person was sick all over me. That's what it is. So it, yes, you feel it, and yes, it stinks, and yes, it's all of those things, but it is not yours. It doesn't say anything about your I am. Your I am is intact because you did not do that. The shame is not yours, it is theirs. So we have to be very clear about those things because if we don't speak to them, I mean, first of all, adolescents are very hesitant to bring such things up in youth group, to say the least. So if we don't speak to them, whether it's their own sin, we need to speak to that. Whether it's sin done to them, we need to speak to that, even as we hold up what God has called us to.
What do you advise for the reconciliation or restoration process for a church leader after abuse has occurred of one of the sheep? Well, I would first say that reconciliation and restoration are not the same things. And so somebody in power who has been sexually abusive with one of the sheep should not be in power. I, I don't move on that. Reconciled, yes. Forgiven, yes. But they have proven themselves an unfit shepherd. And if they really understand not only what that did to whoever the victim or victims were, but how that's affected a whole congregation and every abuse victim that's in that congregation times 10, they will say, I should not be in that position. I have shown myself not to be fit. And if that doesn't come out of their mouths, they're really not fit. If they're saying, okay, I did this, I've reconciled, I've been forgiven, when can I get back in? That's not okay. That's not okay. It's the same thing, you know, in a marriage, <clears throat> if you have a really abusive man, let's say, and he, they separate, and they're separated for, I don't know, a long time, and he does a lot of hard work, which is a rare thing with abusive men like that, but if he does, he will not come and say, okay, it's time for me to go home, because when he does that, you know he's not ready. If he says, you know what, if she never has me back again, I'm going to still be faithful to her. I want to do what's best for her. That's a man who really gets what he did. Same with a pastor or, or a person in power. How do victims of domestic abuse know if their leaders are safe to tell their story to? Um, well, Little by little. <laughs> Part of what you want to do is assess what you hear in public from somebody. Part of what you want to do is listen to other people. You know, how are marriages handled? How are abuse situations handled in the church? If, you get, if somebody says to you, well, nobody in our church has ever been abused, you'll know nobody's safe. <laughs> it, you can put out sort of feelers in general, and most if, if, let's say, it's a woman with a sexual abuse history, by and large, most of them are terrified to go speak to their pastor anyway, so if they do, they don't tell them the whole story. Sometimes that happens, but not usually. So, you know, part of what you could do is interview. <laughs> you know, have you ever talked with women in this church who have a history of abuse? And what, what, what has that been like? How, how do you go about that? And sometimes, you know, people can say, well, I, I'm asking for a friend. I'm the friend, but I'm asking for a friend. But the point is, you can ask questions about how that is handled and how it's thought about and what is recommended to help somebody with an abuse history like that. And if, if the question is, well, are you an abuse victim? You can say, I'm not ready to answer that right now. I just wanted to know what was done here when that kind of thing came up. And then you'll have a feel for how it goes. Is mental illness like bipolar disorder ever a result of childhood sexual abuse? No. And or habituated sin, such as a porn addiction? No. Those things do not cause bipolar disorder. Not that anybody really knows what causes it, though there does seem to be a genetic factor oftentimes uh, 
you know, it's been in a family down through the generations. But schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, things like that have, do not come from things like sexual abuse or rape or habituated sin or anything else. Those are separate problems. And in fact, if somebody has bipolar disorder, they probably are more vulnerable than most people and the likelihood of things happening to them or their inability to manage themselves will be greater than in the normal population. If somebody has bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or something like that, they need to see a psychiatrist. They need to be evaluated. They need to be put on medication because they can't conquer and look at anything else, whether it's a history of abuse or a porn addiction or whatever else, until there's some stability in their mind. What can be done to help someone leave past abuse in the past after years of therapy? Well, on some level, abuse is never in the past because there are always things that happen that we see. It could be on television. It could be a, the way a person is. Uh, it could be somebody else's story of abuse. And what it does, it's like this fish hook that goes down in our heads and pulls the whole file back up again. It isn't ever gone. It's always there. Hopefully, it gets Actually, there's research. <laughs> there's research that shows that as people work with their trauma and their abuse over time, the space that it takes in the brain gets smaller, not erased. So you might end up with, so the same thing is true with vets or something with, with the trauma from war. When you first meet them, it's like that's all they have in their brain. Everything is centered on that, and they're always watching for danger, and they're always, always, always things. And then as they do the work, there are spaces in their life where it isn't running everything. And then as they do more work, it becomes smaller. And it literally takes up less space in the brain cells. But it never goes away. That's part of the story of that person's life. And you, you think about this. Suppose somebody is violently raped by a man wearing a blue shirt. Now. That person may, for a long time, see a blue shirt and run out of the room screaming. They may have done a lot of work about the rape and grown a lot and everything else, and so they can even sit down next to somebody in church who has on a blue shirt. But the blue will trigger something. That's a blue shirt. It's on a different person. I don't have to be afraid. But that's still thinking about the abuse. It won't go away. That's part of the sadness of it. That's part of the horrific nature of what we've done by allowing it to happen and not dealing with it in the church. How do you take care of yourself as a helper with so much work in dark and heavy places? That's a good question. Um, I had to learn how to do that. And some years ago, probably 25, 30 years ago, I, um, told God I was quitting. I didn't ask him. <laughs> I said, okay, I'm done. I did this, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. And this is a PCA church and I'm in the PCA and I know we can't say that God said, but I'm going to say what God said to me anyway. Because <laughs> I'm pretty sure he did. <laughs> 
I didn't hear it audibly though, just so you know. <laughs> Basically, I, I, I was instructed to sit down. I have a chair that I start every morning in, in 5.30 in the morning where I read and pray and learn and whatever. So he basically said, go sit in your chair. <laughs> so I did. Make a list of all the reasons you're quitting. So I thought, well, that's easy. So I made a list. You know, it's dark, it's ugly, it's chaotic, it's painful, it's this, it's that, whatever. OK. And I held the list up. I said, see, this is why I'm quitting. <laughs> and then he said, write down the opposites. OK. It's dark, light. Ugly, beauty, chaos, order, all the way down the list. And I sat there and I looked at that list for a while and all of a sudden I realized everything on the right side was a description of God. That's who he is. He is beauty. He is order. All of those things. And what I learned was that I am just a creature, finite I have to sleep every night or I get weird. You know, I have to eat every day. I'm, I'm finite. I'm just a person. And I'm not meant to wallow in, swim in a sewer all of my life. That's not what I was created for. I am called to enter the sewer, but I'm not called to live there. And what I learned was that I had to be very deliberate, and I am to pursue the things on the right side of the list, not in terms of reading the scriptures more or all of those things. I was doing all that. I'm still doing all that, but just in human ways. So I walk in the woods, and I play in the woods with my grandkids, and when the whole world feels completely chaotic, I listen to Bach, because if he ever would, anybody who was ordered, it was Bach. <laughs> I deliberately pursue beauty, order, light, all of those things in just human ways. And here I am. I didn't quit. But I realized that those are very human things and they're ordinary. And I was looking for something up here somewhere. I have something up here somewhere already. But God shows up in those very human places for me and reminds me of his character in these ordinary things. You know, I go, we have a place in the woods in Virginia that's between the houses that our two sons have in Virginia. And so the kids and grandkids all come there. And there's turtles in the lake. And I'm the turtle lady. And they go down with me every evening when we're there and we feed the turtles, these tiny little turtles. We count how many come and all those kinds of things. It's such medicine for my soul. Turtles, who would have thought of that? <laughs> you can't work in this ruined world and step into a sewer now and again, or much more frequently as I do, and not learn this and be okay. You'll either quit or you'll start doing damage, not just to yourself, but to other people. And I began to understand, you know, Jesus kept going to the mountains. Well, he went there to pray. You know, I got that part. But he went there to see the beauty and the sky and the stars that he created. They fed him. They need to feed us. So you'll have th different things than turtles and Bach and whatever, but you need to find those things 
whatever work you do, whatever ministry you're in, you just need human things that reflect his character in your life. Uh, the last one here is about what resources or organizations would you recommend to church leaders for caring for abuse victims and preventing abuse in the organizations? Well, one I listed was Grace. Look them up. Look at their resources. Get the book on safeguarding children. Um, anyway, explore that. Uh, I have a website. It's just my name. There's all kinds of resources on there for these things that you can read, that you can learn from, that you can help set up caregiver groups in your church with, and all kinds of things like that. Learn, be students of the things that you would just as soon pretend didn't happen. And while you're doing that, be students of him so that you'll be like him in those places. Thank you. I'm fried. <laughs>